Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the uh, Stafford Little Lecture. Uh, tonight's lecture is going to be introduced by Professor Mario Gandalsonas, who is the acting dean of the School of Architecture. Good evening. <clears throat> Michael Graves has been in the forefront of architectural design since he founded his practice in Princeton, New Jersey, in 1964. <clears throat> As uh, Robert Shermer, Professor of Architecture Emeritus at Princeton University, where he taught for almost 40 years, Graves is an influential, diversified, and prolific designer. The critic Paul Goldberger, formerly of the New York Times and now the New Yorker, um, has uh, discussed Michael's work as one of the most original voices American architecture has produced in some time. Grace has been the recipient of several of the most prestigious awards ever conferred about architects in the United States. These include the 2001 Gold Medal of the American Institute of Architects, the 1999 Presidential Award National Medal of Arts. And, uh, well, I want to mention two awards that really impressed me. The um, GQ Magazine Award Man of the Year. <laughs> well, I'm saying this because I have three full pages of awards, so I thought I would select some that <laughs> feel really special. And the House Beautiful Giants of Design Award. <laughs> Um, his firm, his firm uh, Michael Graves and Associates, uh, with over 100 employees in offices in Princeton, New Jersey, and New York City, has a highly diverse international practice in architecture, interior design, product, product design, and graphic design. This practice encompasses a wide variety of building types. Actually, it's, again, the list of works of, of designs, it's really enormous. I was telling Michael that if I would go into reading list of prices and list of projects, he probably wouldn't have any time to give his lecture. Um, but I just want to mention some of this wide variety of projects, office buildings, corporate headquarters, university buildings of different types, civic institutions such as courthouses, municipal buildings, educational and cultural facilities such as public libraries, museums, theaters. Hotels and resorts are especially, have become especially one of Michael Graves' specialties. Uh, uh, facilities for sports, entertainment, retail enterprises, healthcare facilities, and the list goes on and on. Among the well-known projects is the Humana Building, the corporate headquarters tower in Louisville, in Louisville, Kentucky, which in addition to receiving local and national AIA design awards was cited by Time Magazine as one of the best, be the, the ten best buildings of the 80s. Another notable buildings are the Disney corporate headquarters in Burbank, California, the headquarters of the Ministry of Culture in The Hague, the Netherlands, the Federal Reserve Bank in Houston, Texas, the much acclaimed state-of-the-art headquarters and training center for the Philadelphia Eagles football team, <clears throat> 
the award-winning 1.1 million square foot headquarters of the World Bank Group's International Finance Corporation, which anchors one end of Pennsylvania Avenue at Washington Circle in Washington, D.C., and Michael has designed expansion and renovation of the U.S. courthouse at the other end. Now, one of my favorite projects, and I know of many others, is the scaffolding around the Washington Monument during the 1999-2000 restoration that I think many people are still missing in Washington. <laughs> um, uh, I, I also want to mention in particular an aspect of uh, Michael Graves' design which I find particularly interesting uh, for, for a number of reasons, and that's the, the fact that the majority, in the majority of the interiors he's been designing for a long time. Uh, he's also designed a wide variety of furnishings, of artifacts, from furniture to lighting fixture, and from this he went down to the scale of jewelry or um, dinnerware, for instance, for international companies such as Alessi, but also for Disney, for Philips Electronics, but also for Black & Decker. And I must say that that's something that it's for me, very, been very, very interesting, this, uh, this <clears throat> transcending the very elite and ivory tower <clears throat> environment of uh, high culture discursive architecture to uh, bridge to places like Target, which for me, I mean, it's been an amazing discovery since Michael, as a story, I would say, since Michael... Um, uh, started designing a line of, uh, of objects and, and appliances for them. Um, I met uh, Michael uh, Graves 30 years ago, um, a little bit over, a few months over, 30 years ago, uh, when he lectured on his work at the Institute for Architecture and Urban Studies in New York. I was immediately taken, really fascinated with the refinement and sophistication of his practice. He was, as far as I was concerned, a young, unknown architect who presented a few very, very exquisite additions and, and projects. Um, I, a practice that I described in an article for Progressive Architecture in 1972, which was uh, called or named the most polemical article of the, of the 70s. Uh, from that moment, 30 years ago, Michael's office has expanded to the global scale where he moves now, where his practice is installed now, bridging high and low, and as I just said, craft and mass production, and going from the object design to urbanism. It is with great pleasure that I introduce to you our guest lecturer today, Michael Graves. Hold on a minute. I have to turn myself on. Yeah, I'm turned on. Okay. Um, it's... Um, this is tough for me because it's coming home. It's kind of wake, right? After 40 years at the school and then to give a talk here in Makash Ten. And I think the only other architecture lecture I heard here, I didn't come to Frank's, I was in Asia. Frank 
Gary's talk recently, was by um, uh, the, the great Philadelphia Russian architect Lou Kahn, who did some teaching at Princeton. And uh, uh, Lou packed the house, as he always would, as he was some sort of deity at the time. This was probably in the 70s. And uh, I remember coming in at the, just before the lecture and with Bert Sonnenfeld. Some of the old-timers in the audience will remember Bert, his amazing character, and uh, a wonderful, literate man. And we sat together and we chatted a bit, and he wanted to know about more about Khan. But Khan had one of those reputations that everybody knew. And Lou started to talk and pace up and down this very stage. And, and Bert looked at me, and then he looked at Khan, and he shook his head, and then he listened to another five minutes or another ten minutes. And I said, what's the matter? And he said, what is this? What, what is this about? What is he saying? And he said, well... It's an architecture lecture. Um, it's supposed to be poetic. And he said, this isn't poetry, Michael. This, this is gobbledygook. And he got up and left. Um, that was the, then Bert moved to California. Um, anyway, so this room has always worried me a little bit about <laughs> jargon and gobbledygook, which I liked from Bert. Um, I gave a lecture um, two nights ago in Rome, and uh, they had asked for a lecture on drawing. And um, I loved doing it because the kids there were, were mostly uh, from America and the various programs all around Rome, uh, the, not junior year abroad so much, but people who go off to Rome for six months to a year, like the American Academy in Rome and other folks that were there. And I talked in a, in a way that was somewhat autobiographical, and they seemed to like it. In fact, one of the Roman architects that I know very well came up to me afterwards, and she said to me that she had never heard a lecture like this or a talk like this, especially from an Italian architect. And I asked her why, and, and she said, well, Michael, you undressed yourself. Um, my English isn't very good. Something like that, though, she said. You, we would never here get anybody to say what they had done right and what they had done wrong and how they had not known very much at the beginning and they still don't know very much now and so on. But she said, that, that just doesn't happen here. But what I did do for tonight is, since uh, this is a kind of... Um, I'm sure I won't be back here in Makaj 10, um, but nevertheless, uh, I thought I would do this kind of little autobiographical uh, number at the beginning, just a few slides, to show you, uh, especially some of the students, where I started, which is very different than the place they start. But I, I, I should also tell you that this lecture is, a, in Bert Sonnenfeld's terms, a kind of hodgepodge of things, because it's not necessarily, as Karen Nichols would say, uh, who's in the front row, greatest hits, um, but things that somehow fit and some things that with the, with the, the kind of 101 that we'll do and um, some things that are new and, uh, and a couple of favorites at the end. And so I'll, I'll show you all architecture tonight, a few interiors, but no products from Target uh, or Alessi. Uh, but I have taken, I thought of that because I've taken off my trusty 1795 Target watch. 
no, no longer for sale at Target. Um, that's good news because they sold through. Uh, if they'd sell, sold really well, they'd still be on the shelves, but uh, uh, never mind. Uh, we, we have designed about 2,000 things for Target in less than three years, and uh, we have about 20 people in our office who are uh, probably at the office tonight working on a, on a deadline we have at the end of the week to show the folks in Minneapolis where they are. And that's turning into a, a, a marvelous relationship, which is expanding the Target uh, products line to something a little larger, something you can put the products in, and you'll have to figure that out because I'm not allowed to say yet. Um, but if you're about to get married, you can sign up for one of these <laughs> buildings um, that you and your husband or you and your bride can, can uh, barter for. But that's another talk. Um, l let's start with the first two slides. Um, if we could, and I hope everybody got in because there was a whole group of people at the, these aren't my buildings, um, <laughs> at the door, and they were telling them they couldn't come in. Um, they can have my seat, um, but, and they can all sit in it. Let's see, uh, pointer. Um, this is just a, a short history, um, and I... Um, went to undergraduate school in the Midwest in the University of Cincinnati, which was cooperative, which meant that I worked two months and went to school two months and kept that up for six years to earn a bachelor's degree with a major in architecture um, because of this work-study program because I needed to send myself through school. And the school was um, large and intense and all Miesian. And this is Mises Crown Hall on the left here. Uh, in Chicago at uh, Illinois Institute of Technology. And um, this is what we did for six years, and we did it pretty well uh, as a group of students. And then I uh, got an invitation to go to Harvard for graduate school, and my first project was for the dean of the school, a man by the name of Jose Luis Sert, who had worked for Le Corbusier. But I was not quick on the uptake, and my first project was like the one on the left in the spirit of Mies van der Rohe because that's what I knew and that's what I thought architecture was. I should also say in those days, which is hard for me to say now in the 50s, um, we didn't have history courses. We had American history, we had European history, but we had, as I remember, in six years at Cincinnati, I had one history course taught on Saturday morning at 7.30 by a retired, retired, retired architect. <laughs> and it wasn't very heavily populated, as you can imagine, being on that day. At Harvard, I had one history course taught by Siegfried Gideon. It wasn't much better. Um, but when I got to Harvard, I did my, as I said, my first scheme was in the, in the manner of Mies van der Rohe because we were all modernists. That's what modernism was to us. And I remember after barely passing the, the, the studio, I was taken into the dean's office after having no sleep for a week, and he had a clear advantage over me, even though he was very short. Uh, he was called Teeny Weeny Deeny. Um, <laughs> it's true. Um, and he said, Mr. Graves, Harvard's been here since... 1636, I've been here for about six years, 
You've been here for about six minutes, and if you want to stay, you'll change your spots immediately. So what that meant was do CORB. So I learned how to do that sort of thing over there, which is the house of, of the Stein family at Garsh, uh, and this is one of the seminal buildings of Le Corbusier. Next, please. And then after Harvard, I went to New York and worked for a year and was lucky to win the Prix de Rome and got myself to Rome for two years. And um, this was an amazing thing. All my classmates at Harvard had, 36 of them, had been uh, to Europe and I had not. And then I arrived in Rome and found the, uh, the kinds of things that you see here. The, this is, these are the brick underpinnings of the Palatine on the left and a slightly out of focus um, 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 baths of Caracalla Maxentius on the right. Um, and I really didn't know what to do with all of this except that I fell instantly in love with it. Right, next please. And I continued to draw, I think like the target products, I did about 2,000, I don't know what's good about that number for me, but it seems to work, and I did these drawings that were enormous. Um, they were 30 by 40 inches. You could imagine this little character from the Midwest sitting in front of one of these things like, like Santivo on the left or Acquapaolo on the right, drawing away, drawing a crowd at the same time um, and selling the drawing afterwards and then being able to afford to go on various trips around Europe. Uh, our stipends at the American Academy was not, not great. So I'm sorry that not very many of these are extant today. They're somewhere else. Um, but these drawings uh, started to um, allow me into the life of the Baroque or the Renaissance or antiquities in a way and see Rome as a place where all these things lived very happily together. And I think that's one of the strengths of Rome. Next, please. But I had a good friend at the time, a man by the name of Leonard Anderson, who was a painter at the Academy. And he would come to my studio after a long day or an after dinner, and we would talk about various artists and architects and so on. And he would see the kinds of drawings uh, that I just showed you just before this. And I would always say, Leonard, what do you think? And he would say, mm, maybe not. And uh, I thought they were pretty snazzy myself, and I was learning a lot. And he said, first of all, you can't draw horizontally on the ground with the subject matter, whether it's a plan, whether it's inside, interior, whether it's the facade, or whether it's the building freestanding three dimensions, uh, by looking up and looking down and looking up, you're going to lose it. I should have drawn, brought my drawing of St. Agostino, which fit nicely on that 30 by 40 pieces of, piece of arches paper, but uh, having been there just yesterday in, um, in Rome and seeing that now, after all these years, the facade is square, uh, it wasn't quite the same, and Leonard was certainly right. So these drawings started out as much, much smaller, and so that I could do this and draw in this manner. This is the uh, Pantino Montana, but it's quite recent. And then on the right-hand side, interior of another Le Corbusier building, uh, the, uh, the great uh, church uh, at La Tourette. Next, please. Now, um, to do any talk on modernism, for me at least, uh, and Le Corbusier, 
this isn't a backlog, but it's got to be there for a minute. When I returned to the United States, I thought um, I would live in the East Coast for five years or so and then return to the Midwest, even though I didn't have connections there. I thought that would be a, a good thing to do. I don't know why. Uh, but uh, the first year, I, well, I, I wrote to all the schools I could commute to from New York, and the best offer was from Princeton. Um, however, the then director, we didn't have a dean then, a man by the name of Robert McLaughlin said, quite illegally, um, that I had to live in Princeton the first year. Uh, he required residency. It was like as, as though I were on the police force of Philadelphia or something like that. But anyway, I agreed. He said, you can certainly commute the other way. I don't care in the summer if you want to open your office in New York. But I fell in love with this place, Princeton, and, and have been here ever since. And that was a, a happy coincidence, I think. Um, but after being here for a very short time, and um, the following year, Peter Eisenman, my great friend and Mario's great friend, the organizer of the Institute for Architecture and Urban Studies after Peter left Princeton. Uh, Peter came to Princeton exactly a year after I started, and we were, um, uh, our offices were in the basement of the new school, that building over there where the um, Orange Key folks always stop in front of the School of Architecture and proudly say, this is the School of Architecture, the ugliest building on the campus. And, <laughs> and then walk on. Well, we were in um, a quite wonderful building. That's because it was so good. It's, of course, been torn down uh, in the 60s, but there are folk songs about that, so we don't need to talk uh, in that regard. Um, but here I show you um, uh, the Maison Domino because Peter and I um, were a little bit political uh, in those days, and we tried for um, a grant, which we uh, were lucky to, to get from Prudential, in 1964 or 5, as I remember, $100,000, which was equivalent to a whole lot of money today. And what we did with that was to hire faculty. And I can't say that because was, that was Bob Goheen's time, but um, he didn't mind at all that we got people to come to Princeton to help with our, um, our research project, which was a linear city. It wasn't built. Um, but uh, nevertheless, in that group of people that came, people that were seminal in, in Princeton's upbringing in those days, people like uh, Anthony Vidler, uh, Ken Frampton, James Gowan, Tony Erdley, um, and others, and Colin Rowe. Colin came as a visiting critic on a couple of occasions, gave many lectures here, and he was an enormous influence on me because Colin was able to make a relationship for me between modernism that I had been taught and didn't understand and uh, perhaps Rome, or not just the antique, but architecture up until modernism. And uh, Colin wrote marvelous articles and, I, I, uh, and, and teaching with him on occasion when he would come, uh, I think I learned a whole lot more than the students. So I was getting everything from Princeton that I had wanted, which was to uh, sit in Marquand Library and read um, to try to teach students and to, in, the, in turn, teach myself because I thought that I, I had not uh, uh, learned what I, I, I needed to because of the kind of a intellectual climate of the of the schools at that time. 
But on the left is a little building that, or a little diagram of a building that Le Corbusier drew early on in his career. And it was, in a sense, to change the nature of architecture. And indeed it did. Uh, and the way Colin talked about it was wholly different than the way uh, Corb talked about it. But nevertheless, let me, for those of you who have not seen this curious little picture before, let me read it for you probably in, in my own way. But these are obviously floors of a building uh, not yet made, but and these are columns here made of steel reinforced concrete. The reason they're so slender, Corb thought they could be that slender, uh, because it was the combination of steel and concrete that were working together here, as were these what are known as slabs here. Not very romantic, but there they are. Now, Le Corbusier said that, you know, if we only had the elevator, and, and indeed the elevator was being invented at this very moment, we can go as high as we want, not just as high as we can walk, three to five to seven stories, something like that, the way Rome is made or Florence is made or most of London at that time. But um, we can go to uh, all heights as long as we could find a way to get people to the top because this system of these horizontal slabs, floors, ceilings, and columns will allow us to do anything in the interior so that you can have whatever you want in here because it's no longer supporting uh, these, uh, these floors. Now, the architects are bored by this because they know all of this. But then on the right is a drawing uh, that Le Corbusier made here in Princeton in a lecture where he was invited by the great uh, director, our director of of graduate studies, Jean Labatou, who taught uh, by Venturi and Charles Moore and Donald Linden and other great American architects. Um, and what was the date? Um, Mario, do you remember? Hmm? 30, 36, 39, hmm? 35? Somebody remembers. And one of our faculty members, a, a, a young man then soon, recently out of the University of Virginia and Princeton, uh, rolled out on the wall of the lecture hall, which we couldn't do here tonight, but a smaller group of people, um, yellow tracing paper, which uh, architects all use. And Le Corbusier drew his lecture, which is a marvelous idea, with these chalks that he had in his hand. And he drew the whole thing. And then this man, Henry Jandel, saved, saved the, 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 the drawings, rolled them up, and, and had them backed with linen. And now they're in the, in the um, uh, art museum, thankfully. Though when I first arrived at Princeton, uh, Jandel, Henry Jandel said to me, I know you like Le Corbusier. Would you like to borrow these for a while? And I hung them in my living room. Um, it was amazing. Uh, but nevertheless, this is, these were two drawings, I think 17 and 19 feet long, and they were in fact in the Le Corbusier exhibit about a year ago. Um, now, it's interesting that he compares the Maison Domino. Now, this is the section. This is if we had just seen this end. And he has lifted it up here. It's a slight advance, I suppose. And now the car is underneath. And he takes the land that would have been here and puts it on the roof as a terrace. And therein lies the, the kind of basis for an architecture, which is confronting uh, the character of two or 3,000 years of architecture because with buildings like this that he said all of you live in in the 30s when he came here, uh, where we would live in that room or that room, and if we wanted a building that's bigger than that, we have to, had to have intervening walls that then would support the ceiling, that would it support the secondary ceilings, and so on, no matter how high it was, still no elevator and all of that. 
and that it would have this kind of foundation, and he did away with that by having this kind of carport underneath the house. Well, when you do that, and pardon me, these little scratches here are blue lines standing for the windows. Now, the windows, of course, are something that we would come up to about the height of this lectern, look out, and it would frame our view, presumably. Uh, and the character of that room is bound to be very different than that one because now the walls are glass from floor to ceiling. And he said, now we can do anything because within this volume, we can have these intervening walls which can look like a, a Juan Gris painting. They can look like uh, Mies van der Rohe. They can do anything, but many things are possible. Next, please. And to show you that, I show you these four types that Le Corbusier made, that he thought he could base most of his work on these types. Um, and indeed, in many cases, that's true. And here's the Maison Domino with these kind of free partitions, if I could say that, inside, and as if you could have your bedroom there and your living room there, and you could have openings uh, anywhere in these walls, and all of that would be glass. And therefore, the character is now dramatically different than the house that we all grew up in as, as children. On the right-hand side, another portion of that uh, lecture doesn't illuminate very well here, I'm sorry, but these are the four types again, and here is the section of the Maison Domino uh, and the kind of section that you see here, and there's one of, the, one of the buildings a little, and its roof terrace is seen there, and there's the sun he draws for us. And all of that is made presumably clear by Le Corbusier in his thesis about the way we could, he could rewrite uh, the, the classical idea of a, a figurative architecture. Next, please. But Le Corbusier was a very clever fellow, and um, he, did, uh, he made, he made um, a, 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 an architecture that wasn't simply bound up in that diagram where all his interiors, let's say, and the divisions of what is public and what is private would occur within uh, that frame that I showed in the Maison Domino. And this is a kind of reach, I'm sure, for some of my colleagues in the school. They won't like this at all, but nevertheless, this is the Salvation Army uh, building that he built in, in uh, Paris in the 30s. And um, here, indeed, behind these objects in the foreground, is the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven-story Maison Domino. Now is a kind of slab-like building here uh, in this drawing with there are the columns, and these are snug back into the wall but still exposed so that you would know that these slabs uh, are being supported by the columns and the walls are again free and they could change their shape and character at will because they are no longer supporting uh, the floor above. In the foreground, however, he's taken those divisions that I showed before in the four types outside the frame and the facade of the building. And here they are in the foreground of the uh, Salvation Army. Now, if you were uh, found on the streets as an alcoholic or whatever, homeless in Paris in the 30s, you would be brought back by those people in the blue suits and brought up here. This is Le Corbusier's car, by the way. He's very proud of that. That brought him into the 20th century in no uncertain terms. Uh, you would be brought through these gates and stopped right here. Uh, this is the walk up. Uh, right here, there's a desk, and you would give something like your name, rank, and serial number. 
And after passing that, you would pass over a little bridge here with a body of water underneath it. Um, and then a rotunda there and another kind of wiggly desk, which is seen here, a little more information and pass and, and, and perhaps a way to come in to this big room, which is just out of the line of the, of the photograph there, to get your new clothes. You will be clean, cleansed and, and given new clothes and then into here. And then finally, up to one of these bedrooms where you will sleep it off and then back to the refectory where you'll be fed and you'll stay there for about two weeks and then back out on the streets and good luck. Um, well, these little fragments and passing over the water and into the drum here and into the kind of cubic volume there are significant to him because he was trying to impart into an architecture in a sense with only geometric character, something that all the kind of trappings of classical, ar classical architecture and the myths and rituals of columns and capitals and bases and flutes and so on had given other readings to other societies, he thought he could rewrite these books. Next, please. And I show you here next to uh, the same picture of the Salvation Army with the, the interior, as it were, of the uh, Maison Domine brought to the foreground and occupying that odd piece of ground. Uh, here's the diagonal across the face of that and does so quite brilliantly, it seems to me. Here is a painting of a similar time by Le Corbusier where it's called something romantic like stack of plates and here are the stack of plates. Here are two Meerschaum pipes and an open book without any text ready to be rewritten. Uh, a a, a guitar back here and the shadow of the guitar there. All of this had male and female significance for him. And then the, the easel upon which he painted turned up as if it were this facade. That's hard to see in this painting, but in some of them there are even openings at the top of the paintings. I couldn't find it for you, but where you will see the landscape beyond as if, as in a cubist picture, uh, the, sometimes the, the, the table seems to be uh, made vertical. Next, please. Now, I remember showing this slide 20 years ago and, and in a recent uh, criticism by Martin Filler, um, he gave it back to me. Um, I thought he had passed on long ago, Martin Filler. I hadn't heard from him in years. Um, but this rather grungy, dirty slide here um, is there to show you one of the uh, objects of, of Le Corbusier's interest in, obviously, the uh, machine technology and the Industrial Revolution and how we could make our houses in the same manner that this biplane had been made called the Farman Goliath. It was actually a mail plane, M-A-I-L. Um, and, and these, you figured out by now, stand for him, metaphorically, as the floors of the Maison Domino, the columns here, and then the fuselage as a place perhaps to live. In fact, that's where the pilot sits. So in the Maison Cook, which is here, here's the fuselage, here's the upper and the lower slabs, as it were, and the slender column. Um, now, it's interesting for me to look at this, and I had just come from Rome trying to understand this work and knowing that in Rome, this is the level of rustication. This is the place where you enter into the building into a rather secure door, uh, and the Piano Nobile will be here, the place of first uh, and social greeting uh, will occur on the second floor, or their first floor. And one of the reasons um, the 
the uh, Europeans call this ground, and this first is simply that reason that the ground level in many palazzi uh, would be rusticated and seen here as a very different kind of proposition. But here, um, one is, is given a void. And now remember, the facade of the Maison Domino is a void. It's glass, top to bottom, side to side. And here is this little figure stuck in here, which is a lot like that one. And here are two tracks here that presumably he could drive his du chevaux into here. And this wiggly, almost English-like walk with a little potted plant there probably signal, yes, indeed, it does signal that there's a door on the side over here. But once the facade is gone and everything that we can read in terms of our own scale, the door versus the window, the wall versus the um, the the, the the surround and, and the three-dimensionality of the object, all of that now disappears into the good kind of void of, of uh, this, this uh, idea of lifting the building up, as you saw in his early diagram. Next, please. Now, I don't mean to th have this as a kind of uh, clever joke, uh, but here is um, the uh, house that I showed you in his drawing a moment ago, uh, the villa at Poissy. Uh, with a glass base here, acting very much like a Renaissance palazzo. In fact, you come in here, and after tending the garden, and it really does look like it needs it, uh, in here there's a sink for you to wash. Is that what it's for, or is it for? does it have a greater significance? A ramp you can barely make out in there, but indeed a wonderful ramp that takes you up to the Piano Nobile with the roof terrace up here and an opening like one of his paintings, uh, imagine the guitar and the Meerschaum pipe and all of that, and that opening into um, the landscape beyond. So if we're sitting behind this kind of piano curve wall here, I'm sorry the slide isn't uh, larger so you can see that, uh, you would then be looking at through a picture on the, on the wall. But in, indeed, it does seem as though in terms of the Renaissance that he's inverted the language completely because if this is now the seen as the rustication, the piano nobile, the window that goes from one end to the other because he no longer has to support the wall with, uh, with anything that would interrupt this. In fact, the supports are the columns behind. That's for, essentially for the layman in the audience to, to understand that. And then this kind of pergola on top or trellis uh, that would make a quite reasonable roof terrace. One ends up rather confused with this kind of uh, inversion. Next, please. Ah, sorry, Paul. Um, I show you here uh, two buildings that I was working on in Princeton soon after arriving here. Uh, my good friend, and I can say that quite uh, 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 literally to you because after all these years, the client, Paul Benazirov, and I are still speaking. Um, but here is the addition to his Tudor house. Uh, uh, the Tudor house is there, and this kind of whirling dervish is in his backyard. Um, and unless you've gone down his driveway, you haven't seen it. Um, but nevertheless, uh, a lot of people got very excited about this little building. It's only one room and a roof terrace, but still it's one of the buildings that Mario uh, talked about in that early 70s article that he wrote. But I, uh, I made this, uh, by the way, at the time, 
um, because the only kinds of jobs that I got were single rooms and additions to kitchens, and I was in Princeton, and I was called the Cubist Kitchen King. You can see why. Um, but there were uh, critics in uh, London, Charles Jenks and others, who were starting to write about what the significance of that red plane was and why this column had fallen and what this uh, yellow brick road could mean up the stairs and across. And certainly that green beam had something to do with the hedgerow on the other side of Paul's garden. And that little cloud shape was not unlike some of Le Corbusier's uh, piano curves uh, above uh, the villa at Boissy. And we're reading a lot of things into it. Uh, and then on the right-hand side, a house in Indiana called the Snyderman House, where where uh, I built the frame outside, more or less rhetorically, and uh, then made a, a great... Um, suggestions or, or rather uh, over-the-top suggestions of when the plane was outside the frame and inside the frame and only about three people in the world could read this uh, or understand it but I was quite satisfied because I liked those three people and, um, but, and they were the ones that really counted you know uh, but it was seen as a kind of private language albeit visually rather interesting next please um, my own office in Princeton, I, I knew that since I had been to Le Corbusier's office in Paris and then seen the, the paintings on the wall, I knew too that I needed paintings on my wall, uh, just like the old man had. And so this is my conference table, and this was the, the wall mural, and this another part of it over here. But there was this kind of anthropomorphism that was almost de Kooning-like, as you see there, uh, that was creeping into the work. And I, again, it was some of that Roman business. I didn't know quite how abstract I could be or whether I should be at all. Next, please. But this is kind of telling. Um, this, of course, for the architects know what this is, but the layman in the audience don't know that this is um, the modular man uh, invented by Le Corbusier, which was the height of a a Parisian policeman with arm upraised who would make the kind of lowest level of a, of a ceiling that was seen as habitable by Le Corbusier as he would contrast a ceiling that is approximately seven feet six inches tall in a builder's house in America is about eight feet. Uh, so something rather low as against something twice that high plus the structure that is intervening. So you would have a ceiling of 15 or 16 feet in the double height volumes of some of Le Corbusier's houses. And this was the kind of measure. So he did away with, with both the meters and the feet and inches uh, and made his own kind of measuring tape, which my critic at Harvard would carry around to his, his board, not the dean, but a man by the name of Jersey Sultan, and measure your drawings with the, the modular. Uh, on the right-hand side, um, a theater in uh, the south of France, a Roman theater, and here's... Um, um, Cesare up there with arm upraised, but not one necessarily like this. But I was looking at this kind of abstraction on the side of one of Le Corbusier's building, his Unité d'Habitation in, in the south of France as well. But I was starting to see my dilemma between this kind of abstraction over here and the differences between doors and windows and, and porches and smaller windows intervening at a kind of mezzanine level and then the kind of larger piano nobile up at the top and the measure of man as understood by these kind of hierarchical elements within the facade and my confusion grew. Next, please. 
And then I started to look at other kinds of paintings, and I sort of did this on my own. So I think Irving and Marilyn must close their ears now because they won't like this. Maybe Jean Pinto as well. Um, but here we have the Annunciation of Botticelli, and I was thinking uh, about the architecture in some of these pictures of Poussin and Botticelli and others, and wondering about how to read these kinds of openings within the kind of subject matter that you see here. Well, obviously the, the archangel has just arrived and uh, has his lily here, which seems to be almost touching the tree outside, which is lifting to the heavens above. And there is this Renaissance door here, clipped or sheared at this moment, uh, turned there. But is it a door? There is no door there. Is it a window? Uh, what, is, what is the closing mechanism? And, don't really have to ask that question because you've got to have a way for uh, this character to come in and confront and tell uh, the virgin that uh, of his, her, his good news. And she's 14, so she's got a big surprise look on her face and wonders about all of this. But nevertheless, here they are confronting each other, and like any good diptych, they are separated by the jam of the door. Now imagine this picture without any of the architecture, without any of the wall. It would be very difficult to imagine that there is something going on in tension between these two, and especially when you start to look at the way Botticelli and the architecture have come into contact with, in the archangel's hand, as he seems to have it right on the edge of the door jam. Well, if we assign, I don't know, eight inches to a foot with each of these He's at least one, two, three, four, five and a half feet from the door, and his, his arm is parallel to the picture plane. So we know that's obviously intentional. And look at the gesture of her hand. Not exactly pushing it back, or not exactly accepting it either, as he seems to be pushing back the surface of the wall to allow the word of God to come to her, she is very passive in the gesture of the hand. And I thought it was quite marvelous, and I started doing these, these analyses of these pictures for my classes at Princeton. Um, and whether anybody believed it or not, I wasn't quite caring in those days, but nevertheless, I wanted to show you tonight how the kind of figure, and the figure interacts with the architecture in a way that didn't lead to my confusion, but started to clarify some things for me. And then, uh, and you saw a couple of those pictures, but some of the paintings that I was painting at the time were more cubist than that more de Kooning-like uh, picture that I showed you a moment ago. But here you have a Brock on the right-hand side and a curious juxtaposition, juxtaposition of this, but, but it's good for me because now at a time when here, where most of the pictures in the Christian world were painted about these subjects, the stories of the Bible and the stories of the church, here, in the time of Freud, they were not. And so here we have Brock painting a table and opening the drawer of the table, or almost the space of it, and wondering what's inside. Surely that knife has just cut the Daily Journal there, and here we are with Le Corbusier's guitar again, but this one by Brock. Um, and uh, then uh, this kind of flask with a couple of pieces of fruit there, and it seems like a perfectly okay little still life um, 
and we might pass on. But, of course, these characters, Brock, Picasso, Gris, were friends of a sort and would go to each other's studios, would look at what the other one was doing, and would comment on it in their own pictures. Um, and I like that kind of language being extended, the three uh, seminal painters. But here, without the message here, what are we to think of in this? So if you uh, allow the reach, uh, this for Brock was the female standing on one side of the table, the knife cutting uh, the table into its own diptych, if you will, in the space as well. And this kind of erect flask with the two little friends here might be the opposite sex on the other side. These are reaches that um, maybe are not so useful. But what I like about it is that it might be possible to arrange in architecture without the mythic and ritual um, um, classicism that, that we no longer presumably believe in, uh, a series of elements that start to have meaning to our own society. Next, please. Le Corbusier made a small drawing in Towards a New Architecture, his seminal um, book, and he draws at the base of that picture, or here, he makes a kind of tracing of one of, this is hard to say, but a map of Rome. This is a map of Rome done uh, by Pierre Ligorio, there's another one, very much like it, by Stefano de Parac, who were both architects and, and, and uh, um, um, archaeologists, I suppose, of a sort. And they were very worried about the, the use that Rome was being uh, vandalized to the extent that it was, where, where the uh, Roman monuments were being used as quarries. You all know that, that the Colosseum didn't fall down. Um, those stones were taken, and, and some of the great churches were made of it. It was available, and it was pagan. Therefore, it was for the taking. But what these architects did was start to draw from the foundation and the scavi that were left in Rome and the kind of construction that they would see, whether it's opus reticulatum or whatever it was, uh, what might have been above it. Well, the plan wasn't often hard to figure out, but what might have been above was often kind of uh, daydreaming. But nevertheless... Here is this sense of, of a portion of Rome uh, with the Colosseum, of course, and perhaps the Piazza Navona, as we know it today, and other figures. But above this, Le Corbusier, on his own, draws these um, curious volumes that we all had in solid geometry and says, essentially, in relating this to that, look, Mr. Architect, Miss Architect, the only thing we have is this stuff. And the way we put it together, the way we cut it, we slice it, change it, modify it, whatever we do, adhere it one to the next, these will make an architecture for us. On the right-hand side, I had started, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago, making these kind of uh, archaic landscapes uh, that would use this kind of identity, not really buildings, but uh, again, almost cubist-like in the way the plane has been tilted up and a great debt, obviously, to people like Mirandi, but this kind of landscape that, that where I could look at the space between buildings and objects uh, just as much as, as um, uh, the space within buildings. Next, please. Now, I show you this again adjacent to a building that was completed a few years ago um, in, uh, in, in Japan, and this was called the Kasumi Research Building. Um, and it is 
uh, a, a small building, uh, office building mostly, with a training center on one side and, and uh, on the other side, you can just see the roof here, you'll see the whole thing in a moment, uh, on the opposite uh, with a rather standard office building in the center. Uh, next, please. But you might see the relationship between those two pieces. Now, here uh, is the, the drawing, my drawing of the elevation of that uh, research center in, in uh, Scuba, which was the place that Izasaki built uh, his city hall. Some of the architects remember that. This is the office building, and here are these little vessels uh, hung onto it, almost like saddlebags on either side, and this one in the center. The clients came to me and said, Michael, we are so fortunate that the city has allowed us to, to lease this land from them for the next hundred years, and we want to give something back to the city. Now, I can't imagine many American developers doing that, but this is what happened. Could you um, uh, build something for us which would be a gift to the city? And I asked around and, and found out that, that there were artisans in the city that had no place to display their work, and um, they needed not a museum, but a little gallery would, would do them. And so we made this little pavilion here, the little uh, cylinder that you see there, which becomes the porte cochere as you drive underneath it parallel to the building here. Uh, you walk into the main stair of the office building, therefore you are in its interior, and then back out again uh, to uh, inhabit the, the little gallery where a potter or, or a, a draftsman or whomever might display his or her work. Uh, for a period of time, and then that would change. I show you that here it's red, it's tile, uh, it's in the foreground, it's closer to the city, as it were, uh, than the building standing behind it, and it becomes the front door, the, the kind of art of, of and artisans of the city become the, the, uh, the, the portal for entry into uh, this simple office building behind. And I show you here this 4th century um, B.C. wall painting uh, with the pomegranate there uh, with kind of wave pattern underneath. And this table obviously is on its way to uh, provide sustenance for the recently horizontal. Uh, and here are these three figures up here, a bronze table, I presume. And like any good architect, this, um, this painting is not finished. There's another circle here or ellipse there not quite pomegranates or any other piece of fruit yet, uh, not finished, didn't quite get done before uh, the old guy croaked. Uh, so, but nevertheless, here is the figure there, and one knows that if you open the pomegranate, the, the blood of the interiors will, will spill uh, quite abundantly, and it's both a fruit and vegetable. Uh, at the same time, uh, the thousands of seeds that are inside are significant, and I like that idea that in a pre-scientific society that all of these figures stood for something. Um, and here, uh, our own society wouldn't know that perhaps, or a few of us would, but not many would know the significance of the pomegranate. But thinking about it and thinking about its uh, interior and, and what it's capable of doing and making many, many more pomegranates or more fruit, uh, it has a kind of abundance and significance. Um, and this found long after that was made, but I show it to you here in relation to that as something might be lost. Next, please. 
very quickly, this is the building in three dimensions here. The plan is simply that. In fact, we took on the work of another architect who had made a footprint of that shape, and the clients came to me. He couldn't get it passed through the city council and the, and the Fine Arts Commission of, of Scuba, uh, and this is the little port cochere in front. So I had to take his plan. They asked me if I could do something with it, and these are these saddlebags on either side and then the standard office arrangement inside. Next, please. Um, here's the building in, from the hillside uh, down below, and again, that, that gallery, there it is, becoming the threshold for entry into uh, the building. Next, please. Uh, many buildings of, of, of our time are built in tile in Japan because uh, it's seen as, as something that will wash itself down quite readily in the acid rain, I suppose. But next, please. Um, and therefore, stone is less uh, interesting to some of my clients, at least. This is the a Hyatt Hotel, um, about 250 rooms in Fukuoka, where we built a number of buildings, but this is the Port Cochere here. Uh, this is the hotel itself. These are suites on either side with retail at the base, and there are these two arms that you see here, and the rotunda, and then a huge office building hung onto the back end of the rotunda, and then behind that, a kind of a reception room, which is used mostly for weddings. Uh, wedding receptions where one goes back there to have stale white cake and bad champagne. Um, but nevertheless, here it is. And surrounding Fukuoka, on three sides of, of Fukuoka, the sea being on the other, uh, we have a kind of minor mountain range. Next, please. So here uh, in the lobby coming up to your guest room, uh, you then look out. Um, I'll show you that in section in a moment, and up into the kind of void of a mountain. But as you pass to your guest rooms up above this line here, uh, you look back at the skylight and the mountain, this done in a kind of copper, uh, looking down to uh, the lobby below. Next, please. This stair uh, is seen here in the section. I'm sorry for this kind of drawing, but here is this kind of mock mountain inside, and the guest room's looking out to the mountain range around. And the office building is seen here, covered in birch, which would never be done here, fire and all of that, uh, and then uh, the reception room there. This stair was, uh, was in the program and called the wedding stair where after getting married in the chapel, then they have in 365 days 450 weddings. So Hyatt's selling a lot of booze. Um, but after, the, after the, the wedding itself, they would stand here, bride and groom, and all the entourage of mom, dad, and the cousins, all up and down these stairs, and then retire to this room back here by taking this little stair there, that one, the wedding stair, and then back here so we could get parking in underneath it. Well... Those that didn't come to the wedding would get a, a postcard of the whole wedding party here on the stairs. It got to be so popular in Fukuoka that they decided to abandon the chapel altogether, and now the wedding takes place here. There are, <laughs> remember that kind of idea of chance as I end the, tonight's talk. Next, please. And the interior. This is a, actually a construction picture, but... But uh, as in the introduction, Mario said that, that we got to, to design a lot of our own furniture, which we did here, the carpeting, the lighting, 
uh, everything uh, we got to do, even the interior of one of the smaller bedrooms. I'm convinced that this is why the Japanese have good, such good figures. This is breakfast. This is one piece of sushi and a little tea. Um, there's no croissants here, folks. Um, that, and this is a yukata here and here, a kind of short um, kimono that you can wear, which you also got to design. So all of the furniture, again, uh, we were lucky to do. Next, please. Um, in uh, Yokohama, we were asked to make a, an art school, which is down here, and two kinds of housing, one um, uh, American or, or, or Western and one Japanese, and a place for the client to have his office and his house at the top, which he does. And this looks out to Yokohama Bay. And so these are the start of a, a few towers that I wanted to show you, but a lot of them are in Asia. The one on the right is the... 72-story uh, telecommunications tower in Xiamen, in mainland China, uh, where I thought, that, and I tried to convince the client that given that the land, and I'm sorry I don't have it in the site, this is a model, uh, the land is quite abundant uh, on, in this place, that perhaps it would be much better if they would allow me to turn it over on its side. Instead of doing that, we could make a real city by doing that because we could make space in the garden and all of that. They said, no, no. We want everybody to see what we're doing. And so I tried in the, in the tower to make something that if you were walking along here with your eight-year-old, that you could say, well, that's where mommy works or that's where daddy works or here or that's where I exercise or have lunch or whatever you do to give some degree of character to the anonymous tower that would stand behind it. Next, please. Um, also in the mainland in Shanghai, uh, this lighting is not mine, uh, but this is the river and this is looking back at the Bund, which is a street uh, mostly done by European architects in the 19th century. The Hong Kong-Shanghai Bank, not the one uh, in Hong Kong, but here in Shanghai, uh, and the Customs House. Our site uh, for a new bank is, is uh, a few blocks behind the Customs House here and couldn't be taller than this and needed to look out between these two buildings. And here it is. It's um, the Fujian Tsinglie uh, Bank, uh, which uh, the, the bank sold uh, to another uh, developer, and we thought it was all done. But uh, we're now building uh, yet another building in, in Shanghai. And uh, somebody went by the site recently and said, oh, by the way, your building is under construction. I said, what's five years? Um, but here it is, and they haven't, I mean, one of the problems is communication, but they haven't said a word to us, but picture of the building and me and, and name and all of that are on the outside of the construction fence. Next, please. It happens. Um, in Seoul, um, I was lucky to be asked to do um, a, a new uh, not golf course, but the golf clubhouse, which is seen here. Probably would rather design the golf course. Uh, but I did many, many schemes for this um, clubhouse, but each time it was rejected by the client, who was a young uh, Korean man who said, no, no, it's not what he wanted, go try again. And I was the third architect, and so he was difficult, to be sure. But um, he was a good golfer. Um, he said to me finally, I said, what is the problem? He said, I want it to be English, Irish, or Scottish. And I thought, what would Lutchins do if he 
got to do a golf clubhouse. And I thought maybe he would do something like this. this these are marvelous buildings for the Koreans because uh, this is the clubhouse right here. Um, this is all lunch and dinner. This is a steakhouse. This is a place for them to meet generally on Thursday morning when they come for the weekend. Uh, so they have a 20-minute meeting here, then quickly out to the course. They come back on uh, Monday morning, have another meeting, uh, and then off by Tuesday afternoon, uh, and that's the weekend. This is the interior of this room here, again, done in birch. Uh, again, not legal here. Next, please. Um, also in Seoul, we're now doing the new uh, American embassy and housing uh, for the embassy. This was an early sketch that it did uh, showing the housing here. The, uh, the residence of our ambassador is here in an existing building uh, of the 1940s um, and another little one back here in his pool and all of that. This was done during the occupation uh, by another group of, of, of uh, Asians. Um, and then this is the embassy where I always thought embassies were kind of low and nice big houses. Uh, these are enormous office buildings today with a lot of really terrible office buildings. Uh, Maison Domino comes true all through there and these kinds of towers. But this is a rather wonderful site where uh, everybody in Seoul who sees it says, well, you know, I walked with my husband or I walked with my wife along here. This is, this is uh, the kind of street of dreams, the lover's lane in, in Seoul, so I must be very careful with that, they said, and be very gentle with our building. So we have pretty good landscape architect working with us uh, there. And, uh, um, and let me go on. The next, please. Now, I didn't do the buildings on the right. Very quickly, I want to clear that up. Nor did I do the Red Sea, which is here. Um, now, this blue stripe is the Red Sea, and these rather smallish, four-foot-high bushes are, are um, endangered species uh, on the Red Sea in, in Egypt, um, and so they will be kept. They're mangroves, and they're here, and they're quite wonderful. Um, but I was brought to this site because the client had had this hotel designed by a group of people called hotel architects, hotel specialists. And uh, he said, I've, I've started to smell a rat when they only came to the site once in two years. Uh, they seemed to be very disinterested. Uh, and then he said to me, do you like these buildings? I took this picture for you. Um, and I said, well, not really. These this seems to be out of one drawer, and that's another one. And then he didn't know what to do, so he sort of glued them together with this contraption there. But I said, what I really like, my client's name was Semia. What I really like, Semia, is the marvelous landscape that you have here. It's quite, quite incredible. And then the pool, which is really engaging. And I said, I don't know why you did that. And he said, I don't either. Next, please. So then he showed me uh, yet another hotel that was under construction, and it's here on the left. And Mario said something about scaffolding before, uh, but the client wanted to know whether I, here are Le Corbusier's columns, by the way. Here are the reinforced, there's the steel coming out of the top. I don't know what happened here. It looks a little bit tricky uh, at that point. And here's a man in pajamas up here who will, on the next day, I'm sure, be asked to glue another piece of column on there. 
And there, <coughs> my client was quite engaged with all of this. He said, this is really Western construction, and would you build like this? And I said, no. And he said, why? And I said, I didn't have enough insurance. Um, <laughs> this, is, this is really quite worrisome. Uh, I mean, I am used to Asian, um, Asian scaffolding, which is bamboo, which is really safe, but not this stuff. Um, on the right-hand side we, uh, is a is a vault of a building very much not the one, I didn't take a picture of it that day, where we went to have lunch, where he asked me what I would do. And I said, well, I would do something in the vernacular and something that your masons can do quite readily. The masons were, were, were quite incredible, and uh, they can do vaults like this and domes and wonderful brickwork and stucco work and so on. And I said, why are you bothering with all of this? And he said, so the, the Western Europeans and the Americans and the Canadians will come. And I said, well, they are not going to come for this Motel 6 stuff. They will come to something that has the spirit of, uh, of this landscape and what has been here for the past 200 years. And without being uh, old-timey about it, we can certainly reinterpret that. He said, all right, before I feed you your baklava, tell me what you would do next, please. So... I had to draw for my lunch, and this is what I drew there in a place called Alguna, uh, about two hours south of Cairo on the Red Sea. And he, he asked about all of this, and he said, all right, what would that be? And I said, that's a sitting room, and that's the bedroom, and we need very little light, and the, the light is fierce, uh, I have to tell you. And a little, little bit of light coming through the top of this dome, these are vaults here, uh, more of the same there, sitting rooms. And, and bedrooms up above, porches and the like, and then I did more of it. He liked this. And so I, when I got back to Cairo with him, he said, uh, draw that for the people in my office. So I drew another one, and that's what that drawing is. I didn't have my laptop, and that was a good thing, because I couldn't have done anything but get my email. Um, so um, he said to me, oh, no, you can't do this. Nobody will come. Um, the Egyptians especially won't come for all of this. Uh, they want glass. I said, we're in the desert, even though I, I kept looking for Lawrence of Arabia, but, but in that great white horse and things flying off his headdress and all of that. But the sand there is really very uh, nasty. It's, it's like a, a kind of tan mud. And so I, he, the client was wonderful. He wanted to make the beach very good for that other architect. So he, he brought in tons and tons of sand and it blew away in a week. Um, <laughs> But nevertheless, uh, I said, I, I really exhausted every kind of argument, and I, I've talked too long, so I won't tell you what they all were. And then finally, I knew where I could get him, and I said, and it will cost you half as much. I probably said that to Paul Benesseroff as well, but we know that's not true. Um, but nevertheless, he said, uh, half as much? And I said, well, maybe not half as much, but certainly not as much. And he said, okay. So next, please. So we made a, a building that was just across here. This is the Red Sea, and it was about 150 rooms. And uh, he was having a very good time with the bank as they liked our drawings and thought everybody would like to come here, and the bankers wanted to come. They, he, so they said, we'll give you more money if you'll make more rooms. And so knowing that these people would all get the sea, we brought the lagoons in here, all through here, dredged all of this out, and you can see it over here. Here we are flying in in his Piper Cup. Uh, and, and there, so all of these have little paddle boats like some of you know Boston's uh, swan boats. Uh, so they, all the kids get in those and travel around here. So everybody gets the water. 
This is the hotel itself. This is called Back of the House. And this is the pool, well out of the wind, which is fierce as well. Next, please. If you could go back to, that would be good. Can you reverse? I just want to, oh, no, that's fine. No, no, good. That mountain range separates us. If you just went that direction for about a half a day, you would come to the Nile, and the Nile would be parallel to that low mountain range there. I know people don't know where this little burg is, so uh, these are other hotels and, and villas that he's built. Next, please. Um, and so my drawing here shows the front entrance to the hotel, uh, a restaurant behind here, domes above, uh, retail, more retail, bars and restaurants there, and here it is from the other side, different color scheme. Uh, next, please. Here is the pool, and you've never seen so many domes all collected in one place. There they are. The masons make $2 a week, so uh, it was a good deal uh, for him. Here are the little villas, which you can now rent because of the massacre that happened two and a half, three years ago on the Nile for $37 a night. Uh, so go quickly uh, before people forget. Next, please. Um, these are the lifeguards, obviously, here. Um, for, for or the kids, uh, the domes and the vaults and so on, roof terraces and all. Uh, next, please. The passages between the, uh, one place and the other, these are uh, between those, the restaurants and bars and, and some of the retail. But you see the light coming all the way across the floor here and then coming down through this kind of rattan roof here. The difference in character of light is just amazing what you can do there because they have three hours of rain a year. Next, please. So you don't even need uh, to cover uh, all of this except for flies and that sort of thing. But the, the stucco work is integral with um, the color called patissa. Uh, and this dome was once blue. In fact, that's inside that dome. Not that one, because this one has a skylight. But it's, it's that kind of blue, this kind of blue as well. But now this has faded as has that. Uh, it looks white here, but in fact, it's a very, very light blue. But you can see the kind of uh, uh, wonderful coloration that occurs all the way through this whole project. Next, please. But that's what you would be sleeping under on the right-hand side. This is one of the suites, and I wanted to show it to you tonight because um, this is uh, uh, where uh, the, the brother of the, of the client would stay. And we would have these meetings, and... And uh, the brother only came to two meetings. Um, he was called uh, the, the bad brother. Uh, and the client was the, obviously the good brother because he hired me. Um, but this was the living or sitting area. And then there's a little dining space. And then out to your own private pool. And there's the sea beyond in, in this kind of king suite. And so the bad brother said to me, uh, you know, Michael, uh, you've made this very nice bedroom here, but uh, now we're going to have to retrofit it. And I said, well, why? And he said, well, I will be staying there. I don't care whether the brother of the good stays, but I will be staying there. And as you know, I, and they all do, they stay up quite late and go to bed around 4 after they've partied all night. This is a resort community. And he said, um, I am a light sleeper, and you have 
obviously I can turn the lights off, but you've got these little windows up here at the base of the, of the dome, and that won't let far too much light in, so you have to find shutters or some way to cover them up by the next time you arrive here. And the, and the cost will be on you, Mr. Smart, Mark, Smarty Architect. And I said, it wasn't in the program, I'm sorry. And he said, never mind the program. I am a light sleeper, and you're going to fix the problem for me. And, and I thought of every possible uh, way of doing it. I thought of a long handle that I could have down here that the, the people would close the shutter on that. I knew that I couldn't put, put anything in there that would be mechanical and, and electric, electrified and so on. And I was pretty well stumped until I got onto the airplane on my next trip to Alguna. And luckily, they paid for first class. You know where I'm going with this. Um, and so as we started the next meeting, he said, before anybody says anything, uh, the smart architect has to tell me how he got rid of the light in my bedroom. And I said, well, there's a side table uh, by the bed. And in the top of the drawer of the side table, and I drew out of my pocket the black mask that I was given us. <laughs> For 25 cents, you too can, can sleep. And, and we'll put Alguna on it and the Miramar and uh, um, the Red Sea and a logo of the hotel. And you'll be known around the world. Uh, next, please. Uh, the lobby and the bar. Uh, again, we got to do all the furniture. All of it was crafted locally. Uh, and the Egyptian cotton, the rugs, all of that we got to design. Next, please. Um, this is the second hotel. We've done four, well, three and a half, one still under construction. Um, but this is um, the, the, the golf clubhouse of this uh, hotel, which is much smaller, called the Golf Hotel. And here's the other hotel behind it there. But uh, this is the start of the spa to the side of it here. And this is where you wait for your tea time to be called, and then you race out and hit the ball. Uh, not into the sand, presumably, but into the grass they've taught to grow. Next, please. And here is this grungy grass that's here. And here is a sand trap, which seems somehow uh, redundant. Um, <laughs> they, they, in fact, told me the story of the first, uh, the first golfers in Egypt, where the help would come along with a small prayer rug, put it down, and somebody would hit the ball off the prayer rug into the, the beyond. And then the help would run quickly with the prayer rug and put it down under the ball. And they were never in a trap. They always had the prayer rug to hit off of it. But since the folks in Dubai learned to grow grass on deserts, uh, so have the uh, Egyptians here. Uh, but here is the restaurant for the golfers and then the bar. And they can sit up here and watch their friends tee off. And if they're really sweaty, which they will be, here, here are the domes and the top light for uh, women's and men's over here on the other side. And here's some of that, those domes coming down into the spa where you're really pampered. $37 a night. Next, please. Uh, we were also engaged to design 100 little houses. Uh, if you wanted to buy one, you could. However, if you did, we had planned all the interiors, again, the furniture, the fabrics, the lighting, uh, the plans, of course, and so on. But my, the brother of the good actually had, without telling me, had given all the interiors to old girlfriends uh, to design in Cairo. And they came here with more turquoise and gold than anybody's ever needed. So don't go in these houses if you ever go to Alguna. Next, please. 
Um, a third hotel, just to show you the slightly different site, which is a mountainous site, marvelous stone. Here's the stone coming from those mountains, which now surround this pool here. And so the layout is, is very different uh, on, on this uh, hotel, but we won't go into it. Next, please. And again, the light where we used this uh, in, the, in the lobby uh, before, and this is an ante room to the lobby. Here is uh, slats of, of, of uh, cypress used outside, uh, which conditions the light coming into these places. And I show you this because one reference I didn't make on the influence of Dikirko and all of that, but again, showing the way the balconies work uh, as you would gain access to your room. Next, please. And we leave Alguna here, a stair that takes you up to this level, more of the housing and all of the bougainvillea and trumpet vine and all are growing on this trellis all over the place now and back out to uh, the sea. Next, please. Um, the, the next project is a, a new one that we're working on. Uh, hurry as much as possible here. But a, a, an enormous uh, project in the Canary Islands. This is three and a half miles long here, and it will house as a resort community somewhere between eight and 10,000 people. So we are asked to do it all uh, as a scheme, and, and then the hill towns and two golf courses which string along here, riding here and down through into the town and back again. This is very steep on either side. This is the entry way back here coming out to the marina surrounded with restaurants and hotels and the boats that would be there and so on. Next two, please. Uh, this is a very big drawing. Uh, in fact, this is part of the hill town there, and so that rock that you saw in our model um, uh, is seen here as the substrate to uh, the houses that are up there, churches and community centers and so on. I didn't do that rendering on the right, but I thought it might help you understand the all of this back up to the mountain on the side. That, that um, folly up on the hill is actually the water source uh, for the town. Next, please. Um, we were asked to do uh, a village, not for the athletes, but for the media. Uh, some of my colleagues would be happy about that, but they, in the school. Uh, but this isn't um, um, media as they use it, but this is... Um, the media as the rest of the world uses it. Um, this, this is, in fact, the, the uh, uh, media village for the 2004 Olympics uh, in Athens. Uh, whether it will get done or not, we're not sure, as they're discovering all kinds of wonderful artifacts, as if not all of, of uh, Athens is like that, so everything's been slowed to a crawl. Next, please. Um, in, in The Hague... I was called one day by a friend of mine, Rob Creer, who's a, more a town planner than an architect, and he had, for the last 10 years, been working on a little section of the Hague that is right here, with a lot of interesting houses here. Uh, Richard Myers City Hall is right there. A building called the Black Madama uh, is right there, uh, which is evidently the most hated building in all of the Hague, and this uh, kind of maison domino of 20 stories sitting there. And he said that he had apportioned all of this work to Dutch and European architects, and what they wanted me to do was redesign this building. They were stripping it, 
taking the the surface off of it, the aluminum surface that had died since 1955 when it was built. Uh, the um, interior had been stripped of, of all of its bad stuff, like asbestos, and they were putting a new core in it, and they needed two uh, ministries for the government. Um, on one side, they wanted, and they imagined that it would be divided more or less in half where the core is, that the uh, Ministry of Health, Education, and Welfare would be on one side, and equal to that on the other side would be the Ministry of Sport. Um, you figure it out. Uh, on the right-hand side, a picture I took, which is out of focus up tad, uh, in 1960, um, when I was at the American Academy and had gone off to Holland, I saw this incredible picture of this house, and I imagined Vermeer inside painting that piano, um, and then this house here, this is 19th century and this is 18th century. Uh, the houses are both three stories. Uh, the houses' windows are about the same size, but the character of these two buildings is, couldn't be further uh, different one from the other. Uh, where this one seems to be made of these kind of pushed out um, bay windows as if they were trying to get a little closer to the square just in the foreground. While the masonry wall allows these other windows to be pulled back and give the window some protection. Well, knowing that I was about to reclad this and do the new interiors for this ministry, um, I thought, given that this was a glass box as it was started, uh, that they were used to all of that glass, and the days in, in The Hague are pretty gray, more or less, that I should not, perhaps like Richard Meyer, had made the strip glass here, but but uh, find a way to make windows. I thought that I could do a wall of windows rather than uh, a glass box. Next, please. So here are the two ministries represented there in their big party rooms at the top. This is the core running through the center, uh, so the core gets light from the outside. And here are those windows I showed you in the 18th century house and the base we put it on. This has an awkward kind of front as it connects to a, a building by... Caesar Pelli here, the one with the cabbage, and then uh, one with, on the other side, another ministry by a Dutch architect, and then Rob's building, Rob Creer's building is here, and the rest is all around it. Next, please. And here's the building finished, uh, and there it is from the Queen's Lake and the rooftops. This, this kind of double hump here has been given, and the building's been given a name by the cab drivers, but you needn't know what it is. <laughs> It's just the kind of pair of somethings of The Hague. So next, please. Um, in Washington, uh, we were given a site 580 feet long, a double block for the World Bank. Um, and I'm given the bankers all insisted on corner windows. Um, <laughs> looking at Mirandi here dividing his composition in a series, the series of bottles that he used, I thought that maybe I could use these kind of pavilions here to give all the bankers the corner windows that they wanted in this enormously long building. Next, please. <coughs> and here's the interior of that with all the, uh, the countries of the World Bank represented uh, there in the, in the flags. And again, more furniture that we got to do. Big, big, big chairs for the big bankers uh, that sit there. Next, please. Um, in um, Rome... Uh, the picture on the left, the etching on the left, is of the raising of the obelisk um, uh, in 
1586 by Domenico Fontana, who made this etching himself, as he was the architect of, of the scaffolding, nothing more. And it is a kind of wonderful three-part picture where the, the obelisk is coming into St. Peter's Square there, being pulled by oxen and so on, um, then being raised here, sort of 45 degrees as you see, and then in the vertical dimension over here on the right. And here is the plan that Fontana has made for us and all the inscriptions about the day uh, that you can read on it. Um, I was called by Target stores uh, a few years ago uh, and asked if I would be willing to design the scaffolding for the, for the uh, Washington Monument. And I said, yes, immediately. And they said, well, you don't even know what they need yet. And I said, well, it was good enough for Domenico Fontana. It's good enough for me. And they said, what? And so I said, never mind. I'll tell you later. Um, but they said, well, you're, we're paying for it. Target will be paying for this uh, scaffolding and the interiors. But your client will be uh, the National Park Service. I said, are those the people in the funny green hats? And they said, yes, they are. And they're not easy. And indeed, they weren't. And um, I designed uh, this as the scaffolding. And I took it to the first meeting in Washington. And they said, this will never do. Not the Target folks. They loved it, of course. Uh, and, uh, but the, the funny green hats said to me, what's this material that you have used? And I said, wood. And, and they said, why? And I said, Domenico Fontana. Um, and it's traditional. No, no. We want something really traditional. I said, what would that be? And they said, aluminum. And I said, aha. Uh -huh. But, Mr. Graves, we will, we will price this for you uh, and let you know. And I said, don't bother. You already don't want it, so we know it will be too expensive. They said, that's right. Um, but I'll tell you the story of this, uh, which is presumably not an apocryphal story, and I'll make it very quick because it's too late. Uh, and they stopped serving at La Yers, where you're all going to dinner, I know. Um, but nevertheless, um, the, the, the story goes that, let's take this one uh, as the example, but the, the obelisk was being raised, and it didn't get to 90 degrees. It got to 89 and a half, let's say. And they worried with it for quite some time, and all of these folks here at the base were, were working, and then the Romans came to help. And they shouted instructions to uh, the workers, and the workers couldn't hear themselves uh, talk to each other or think. And so they finally, in exasperation, went to the Pope. And the Pope made a decree, and the decree said, if there's any more talking by uh, the Romans outside the workers, uh, they will be taken away and put to death. It, so, somehow it was very quiet uh, from that point on. So the third day, and all of this is written up here, um, to the third day when a retired sailor uh, where there was all this huffing and puffing going on shouted out, wet the ropes. And uh, what was that? Wet the ropes. No, you're speaking? There's a decree of death. They took him off put him in the prison, and would hang him the next day. And they stood around the rest of the day, and like good Italians, they said, well, we could try. Um, so they wet the ropes, and the ropes shrank, and the, the uh, obelisk uh, snapped into verticality, 90 degrees. They brought the sailor back, still alive, still kicking, 
took him to the Pope. The Pope gave him audience. And um, he said, not only are we not going to put you to death, hang you, um, but we're going to do something quite grand for you. And uh, presumably, uh, the Pope said that, and this is the true story, uh, that uh, the sailor, given he was retired and he liked flowers, he found out that he would give him the flower concession for not only the rest of his life, but for all his heirs. So if you buy flowers in St. Peter's Square, think of the sailor. Next, please. Here is uh, the aluminum scaffolding, and everybody asked me, what happened to the scaffolding? Um, it goes back on the shelf, and it'll be used again. Uh, but they were going to build one of these in Minneapolis until they found out what it would cost, because they had to build the obelisk inside to support it. Um, but then we got, uh, we got a call from the White House, and uh, they said, I won't tell you who, said, could you convince Target to pay for two more months of the rental on the scaffolding uh, so that we can use it for the turn of the millennium? And we'll use it as the feature. So here it is. And it's not the stupid ball dropping in Times Square, nor is it the Eiffel Tower. But I love the idea that this was used for the turn of the millennium. I'll tell my grandchildren. Next, please. Um, in New York, I'll go very quickly now because we're very late. Um, uh, I, a new housing uh, uh, block, not really a tower, where I used the big window as the kind of uh, domestic uh, figure on the outside of the building. And then there, like the Hague, there are four of them together here for various apartments. And then uh, down uh, on 425 5th Avenue, which is 38th and 5th, uh, this 67-story uh, tower, which is about up to here now, I guess. Next, please. In Denver, uh, we were asked to add to this building built in 1955 by a Denver architect who long since has gone horizontal. But here it is. There was about 125,000 square feet, and we were asked to make another 350,000 square feet for the Denver Public Library. Um, and so the context was this and the wonderful uh, square in the center of the garden in the center of of Denver. Then this is the Denver Art Museum done by Joe Ponti. Ponti built the Pirelli Tower, which was just hit by the, the, the private plane in, in Milan. It has nothing to do with this lecture. Uh, Liebeskin, Daniel Liebeskin, is building over this street, and his new addition to the Denver Museum is over here, if you go to see that. So you can see uh, Danny's building there, and this museum there, which seemed to be sinking, but they didn't know that it was, uh, that was a conceptual notion that it is today. Um, but the big yellow school bus arrives here. This is the kind of program. They come in. The kids come in and go to the uh, art museum. They come across our building, have lunch, uh, then on to the history museum over there, and then back onto the yellow school bus and out again. Um, so this is a building that uses this kind of skewer of movement down through here, taken directly from the ideas of the, uh, the Noli plan of 1746 of, uh, of Jean-Baptiste Noli in Rome, how to understand the plan in its hierarchical spaces uh, from one side to the other with a loggia along the back face here. And this street is being planned by Denise Scott Brown. Um, so this being Indiana limestone on one side, we wanted this to be limestone on that side, which it is. And so we could build up in the center. So 
this side would be small and that side already is small and then the buildup of the other uh, thousands of square feet is in the center. Next please. Here is part of 19th century Denver, our building there, the low part, and then the rotunda, which is the primary reading rooms, entry on one side, one tower, entry on the other side, with some uh, refrigerators left out in the weather uh, there by an architect in New York with a very short name uh, here. And uh, this is by Philip Johnson. and, and Philip gets teased a lot about this because the snow piles up on this curved facade here in the wintertime. And then by noon, when the sun comes out, it slides down the side of the building. And, and people say, oh, you New York architects. Well, here's our building. Again, you're going to see inside the rotunda. Next, please. Uh, walking into the foyer and then the, what the librarian calls the Great Hall, which is there. The uh, uh, shelving here for new titles. Uh, which is the kind of metaphor of the stacks inside the museum. Next, please. And there's a section through uh, the reading rooms, and then the, then the um, um, reading room on the right is the, is the rare book room containing mostly Western history where the, the G7 met two years ago. Next, please. We have been given a chance to do a residential college um, at uh, Rice University. This is the original cram plan, Ralph Adams cram and Goodhue and others working in the original campus of Rice with a long alley into the front building here. Some newer buildings back here, you can see how much bigger they are than the quite wonderful buildings of cram. And, and there were two residential colleges like, um, like our colleges here at Princeton, um, uh, one called Brown and one called Jones. And then a foundation uh, was given, uh, gave to Rice uh, money for a new uh, college called Martell, which is here and here and there. And we were then asked, as we planned this new college, which is here um, uh, in that model, uh, to plan not only where they serve the food, which is here called the servery, and the dining room for our college, but a new dining room for these other two colleges as well, one for Jones College and one for, for Brown College, all using the same servery. All right, next, please. Um, and this is inside um, one of, well, the, the Martell, the new uh, college eating uh, hall, and this is the servery. Um, and evidently, with the site plan, we did... Uh, such a good job, they thought, uh, that we've now just been given the master plan for all of Rice University. Next, please. And here uh, are the pavilions. This is a very gloomy day. Sorry about that. Uh, but here are the student rooms looking out on one uh, green on one side. And then on the right side, uh, a dormitory at Drexel that we did a couple of years ago using the kind of townhouses of, of Philadelphia where these kids lived or do live. Uh, and then come to the dorm uh, there, and you can see it as you go on the train past Philadelphia. Look to your right, I guess. Next, please. As I don't think you'll get out of the train. And as Mario said, we did do a training facility for the Philadelphia Eagles, which is there. And I'll show you the interior of that in a minute. But we did several schemes for their new stadium. But we couldn't bring with us the Coca-Cola contract and other things as the so-called sports architects. I think they're related to the hotel architects before. Uh, but 
This is obviously the Eagle Stadium here, a little too flappy maybe, but next. Um, and this is the so-called training facility with a little stadium here where there are three fields out here and the owner's offices up there and the rest of the whole Eagles uh, entourage up above there. It's called the NovaCare Center because they pay for the injuries. Uh, and <laughs> this Quonset hut over here is where these guys um, uh, make themselves look like that uh, with arms as big as this podium. Um, next, please. In Indianapolis, staying with the sports team for a minute, the new, the new NCAA headquarters, which is here and here. It's a big office building there and auditoriums and so on where they meet and sanction people like Bobby Knight and, and others. And then they show memorabilia of, of all the uh, uh, college athletes in this building and then have a smaller uh, press room there. So they get a little piece of stadium here, a little fragment left in a park that was designed by another Princetonian, uh, Charles Moore. Next, please. And here's our stadium fragment, which was supposed to be open at one time and all the memorabilia was supposed to be inside that. This will turn to green someday, copper there, and that's one of the vaults uh, for the offices up there and then big room they use there for receptions and dinners and fundraisers and so on. Next, please. And in uh, Pittsburgh, uh, the new O'Reilly Theater, um, which had to compete in a way with the huge theaters in the neighborhood, uh, but we planned a whole district here uh, for them with a, a park uh, and then artwork uh, by Louise Bourgeois um, and a park by Dan Kiley. And here are these two 85-year-olds who, when they met, took an instant dislike to each other. So it was up to me to make nice and keep them together. But coming into the lobby here, one gains access to the theater by coming around a kind of a hemicycle there and into your seats. The thrust stage is there, and now we'll see the inside of it. This is a practice hall upstairs. Next, please. That too will turn green. And so here's the interior of that uh, maple wood, uh, and then the OG molding used here uh, for acoustics and the balconies up above that. The Gilbert and Sullivan was not by us. Okay, but this is this is the thrust stage, and I like the idea that you're. Uh, you come in, you won't come in late, but you come in here and you're on the floor with the actors at that lower level. Next, please. A little house in Cincinnati, um, not so little. Uh, a guest wing over here, the house is there. This is on the side of an old uh, farm and, and barns, and so we've used the wood of the barns inside and out, and this is the potting shed and the study of the client here at the edge of the field. Next, please. And inside that house, uh, missing two pictures here, um, and another study for him inside the house, and again, furniture and carpeting and so on that we've designed. Next, please. Almost finished. Um, a house in Malibu for the former chairman of Warner Brothers, and it was his beach house and, and his English wife uh, here um, and, and a place for screening of films. And so this is the screening pavilion there, which is now completely covered with trumpet vine. Uh, so it's just this green lunchbox over here. And then the house, which the client, uh, the former chairman, wanted to be a glass box. He really wanted the Maison Domino. Um, 
And uh, his wife, who was smarter, said, that's West, Terry, that's West. Uh, you can't do this, uh, make all of that glass, we'll bake. And so we got this porch here, and he thought the oars supporting the awning was over the top, so we didn't do that, but over here. Uh, and now we've built a guest house over on the side of this, which I haven't stayed in yet, but next, please. And inside, the light is just incomparable because of that wonderful California light. Um, and so again, the furniture and all. But Terry wanted to, the client wanted to come in from the PCH, the Pacific Coast Highway, park his Lamborghini, um, um, and then into the courtyard and into the foyer and be able, at this point, to see the ocean completely and nothing to stand in his way. And he wanted all of this glass. We, talked him into these French doors, which are over here. But even the table, which is there, is then glass uh, with a little vase that I did for Stu Ben a few years ago. So we, we told him it was all transparent. It would be okay. Next, please. Um, upstairs, the corner of the bedroom, they entertain a lot. Therefore, they get entertained. And Jane sits here and Terry and write the thank you notes. And then exhausted, they sit out here and look at Japan and live happily ever after. Next, please. My own house, which a few of you from the school came to just before this, um, looks like this in about a month uh, with the wisteria out. My wisteria used to be purple, but there's not enough ore in the soil here, so it has turned white. This used to be a town dump uh, here. It was about 30 feet high when I bought the house. So bad that the neighbor built a wall over here, and I was happy about that. But this building was built in 1926 uh, by Italian masons who came to Princeton to build uh, the Gothic dormitories on our campus, um, and most of them stayed, and therefore that's why we have such good masonry buildings in Princeton. But they didn't build a Route 1 mini-storage warehouse. This is really a warehouse. It was built as a warehouse. It had 44 little rooms in it. Um, happens to be 44 Patton Avenue. Well, anyway, um, at the same time, it was more like a Tuscan barn for me than anything else, and it was made of hollow clay tiles with a kind of pink or light terracotta stucco uh, surround. And my daughter, uh, about age 9 or 10, was very embarrassed to bring her friends home. And I asked her why, and she said, well, it doesn't look like a house, Dad. And I said... What does a house look like, Sarah? And she said, a house is white, Dad. And so we're back to Corp again. Um, and this little alley uh, over here, the tree is given to me by a client who changed her mind about a landscape plan we'd prepared for her. But this connects me to a little town park just beyond, which then connects to our office a little too close. Um, this underneath the pergola that I built uh, here on the outside of the Tuscan barn. Next, please. Now, we're going to walk in that door. This is not the front door, but this is the door from the terrace going into the library. As people have seen, my books are mostly on the floor, but here uh, they are in the, the, uh, the uh, shelves. I mentioned Peter Eisenman, who came to Princeton in 1964, but when I finished this room, uh, Peter, who has probably the best collection of modern architecture in the world, is really an invaluable uh, uh, group of books, um, came and he said, oh, I hate you. I hate you more than you'll ever know. And I hate you 
I hate Meyer. I hate Guathme. I hate you all. You can afford libraries. My books are on the floor. My books are ten times better than yours. Much more value, valuable. I've been offered millions of dollars by the Getty for my books, and I can't afford a library. I said, sell a few books, Peter. Um, but he, he said, Michael, what kind of wood is this? This is, this is bird's eye maple. I don't know how you can afford this. You're an architect. You're, you're a faculty member at Princeton. You get paid nothing. What is this? How do you do this? And I let him finish, and he did. And he was sort of tapping the wood and looking at it. And he said, this is just amazing. And I said, are you finished? And he said, yes. And I said, well, Peter, these are PVC plastic pipes. And this is MDF here, and, which is kind of compressed board, uh, with faux painting on it. And I said, I'm going to tell them at Princeton that you didn't know this from wood, and that may be your problem. Next, please. <laughs> This is the living room with, with mostly Biedemeyer furniture and then collections of the Grand Tour, which is another talk, um, but, and a couple of chairs that I did. But mostly, it's all Biedemeyer in here. It's a little too much in places. But the ceilings are low. Therefore, I brought the mechanical system around the, the top. It has no basement. And so I lowered the ceiling even more to get the structure and the mechanical in. And then this is the normal ceiling there. So it pushes back up again. Next, please. Um, a little detail, and then my breakfast room on the right-hand side where some of my Etruscan pots and Roman and Greek pots are, where I first started collecting them at the Porta Portese for $10 in Rome, which you can't do that anymore. Next, please. And uh, I continue to do uh, these little archaic landscapes, and they've turned, in some cases, into pieces of sculpture about the size of this uh, <coughs> of this. Um, uh, stage here. Next, please. And then finally, these two pictures, which show, again, my little breakfast room with, uh, we started with a kind of still life from Brock, and looking at some of the objects that I've designed for Target and Alessi and others to Ben, uh, and the little half-eaten red pear here, as the suggestion of any still life is that uh, there is sustenance and there is the renewal and this idea of the pomegranate, again, where, where we come back tomorrow, it will be spoiled even more and has to be replaced. And that kind of cycle of the day that Le Corbusier talked about in the day, the hour, the sun, and the night uh, would give over to the week and, and uh, the cycle of the year. Uh, all is a part of, of this sense of renewal, as you see in his little still life of 1910, uh, where he again shows his what I think of as one of the four books of Palladio, but this is the first book of Le Corbusier, let's call it 10 to 29, his first monograph, with the pages not yet filled, as he is attempting to rewrite uh, the language of architecture. At the same time, he shows this wine glass over half full, for me at least, um, uh, there as sustenance, uh, uh, the, the, the mind, mind and the body, uh, and then the the pipe here, again, is a constant malish theme uh, for him, uh, where the idea of recreation is a part of mind and body. And then, curiously, in the corner, the little black dice or die, um, as like the wedding stair that I showed you, this sense of chance in architecture is not all things are predictable. My interest uh, is not certainly in trying to rewrite 
uh, the language of architecture, but trying to find in the myths and rituals of architecture the things that we know and the things that our society is and uh, is aware of, takes for granted, and and uh, is is their acts that we go through uh, every day without thinking about it. Whether it's the threshold, the door, the window, and the character of the interior, as it is uh, identifies the, the the kind of community of rooms within the the, the larger sense of the uh, interior of the building, and the building itself as it forms a part of whether the campus or the street is something that that I think is, is there to keep the language and then find ways to call attention to those rituals that, that we so identify with in our, our, our daily existence that, that one can make an architecture and a life uh, and even uh, a life of teaching out of, uh, out of that language. Thank you very much. Sorry I talked so long. I think that in view of the time, we have t uh, time only for two very brief questions. Anybody has a question? It's too late. Okay, so let us, think, uh, let us thank Professor Graves again. I, I think the lateness of the hour is due to the 1795 target watch, and it's not, it wasn't my fault. <laughs> <laughs>